When we are in deep and serious need of guidance, there is still hope. When we are ashamed of our own sin and cannot carry on in our own strength, there is still hope. And the grace of God and the love of God enables us to grow in such a way that we become a people growing in grace and gratitude. If you have your Bible with you this morning, could you turn with me please to Acts chapter 7, and you'll find it on page 1704 of the church Bible, page 1704, book of Acts, and we're reading from verse 51 through to Acts 8 verse 3. Now, to give you a little of the context, because it's a tough chapter just to kind of parachute into the middle… What has happened so far as this, and most of you are aware of this if you've worshipped with us regularly over the last few weeks, we've been working our way steadily through the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 6, what we discovered was this, that so many people in downtown Jerusalem in the first century had been impacted and transformed by the power of the gospel. They were coming to faith in Christ in huge numbers. And in Acts chapter 6, we read this verse, and it says this, and many of the priests also came to faith in Him. And so they were struggling with the number of people trying to get to church on Sunday morning. And whenever you have a large number of people, you're always going to have a number of folks who are in need. And in Acts chapter 6, Stephen was called to be a deacon. And his job was to get alongside and help those in need. He was doing such a terrific job in serving those in need and preaching the gospel. He was, in fact, arrested for his faith, and he appears before the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin were the equivalent of the religious supreme court. It was the highest religious body in the land, made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they asked Stephen to explain what this new movement is all about, who are these people who have turned Jerusalem upside down? And Stephen, with great patience, goes back into the Old Testament, and he begins to explain to them, since before the foundation of the world, God has loved his children and set his love and affection on them. He's drawing them to himself, and Christ has come as the fulfillment of all of God's eternal plans and promises. And his death at Calvary and his subsequent resurrection are proof of all that God has been promising in the past. And at that point, the Sanhedrin respond in a way they should never have responded. So that's where we're going. It's all very exciting. So let's start then, verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city 
and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his word. Now, let me give you a little more of the background before we delve deeper into our passage. As we get into our passage this morning, what we are going to discover is this. And some of you are aware of this because we've been studying Acts the past couple of weeks, that the timeline of Acts covers a period about 30 years from chapter 1 to the end of the book at chapter 28. In chapters 1 to 7, where we've been the last few Sundays watching the impact of the gospel, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, how he cleans, transforms, renews, and grants us by his sustaining and enabling grace, grants us the incredible privilege of moving from religion to relationship. And suddenly, all over Jerusalem, people were talking about God no longer as some kind of distant deity, someone who was disinterested, someone whom they offered sacrifice to half a dozen times in the year, but they now knew what it meant to know him personally, to have the heart and soul and mind transformed, to understand answered prayer, to feel and sense him at work. It was revolutionary. It was a game changer because from that point on, the Spirit of God himself was indwelling individual people. And that's where we've been over the last four or five Sundays. And it took up a two-year time period. Now, this morning, as we move towards the end of chapter 7 into chapter 8, and then in the next couple of Sundays towards chapter 12, it covers a 12-year period. And then next year, when we come back to Acts around the fall season, we'll start somewhere around chapters 12 or 13, and towards the end of the book, and that covers a period of about 15 to 17 years. So if you've got that overall framework in your mind, that will give you a sense of the timeline of Acts. Now, over and above all that, the focus of the book of Acts has been what? Chapters 1 to 7, the church in downtown Jerusalem, as we've explained, as the church is established. And then chapters 8 to 12, the church spreads into Judea and Samaria, and the love of God in the salvation of all of humanity begins to break out from Jerusalem and move north into Syria. And then, of course, into Asia Minor. And then, of course, into Europe itself. And we'll see all that in subsequent Sundays. And then in the closing half of the book, the focus is on the church expanding to the rest of the world. So that gives you a sense of where we've been, where we're going. Now, a little more on Stephen. 
In chapter 6, we've already said so many folks were being impacted by the gospel. Stephen, along with six others, there was seven in total, were set aside in order to deal with the needs of the folks who were coming forward. And this is how they describe Stephen. They describe him, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Now, when folks describe someone you may know, you'll say, yeah, you know so-and-so, she lives at such-and-such, she has three children, yes, her grandfather is, he used to work beside your uncle, and that's how they describe them. But can you imagine what it was like if someone described you as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit? That's quite, that's quite an attribute. And then they go on and say they chose Stephen, excuse me, Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Great wonders and miraculous signs. In fact, Stephen was so impressive. His ministry was having such an impact, he was subsequently arrested, as you know, and then put on trial. Stephen, how can this remotely be true? And he begins to explain And then the Sanhedrin do what they should never have done. They become angry. They become enraged. And what do they do? Look at the passage. Verse 54, just where we started reading. When they heard this, they were furious. Gnashed their teeth. I imagine they're growling at Stephen. Stop that. You can't say that. That kind of thing was going on. They had become violent, not just in their thought process, but in their behavior as well. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. Let me pause for a second. Allow me to say this, because what I'm about to say usually makes us feel seriously uncomfortable. It's not something we like. It's not something we enjoy. This next section of our study this morning will not encourage you to go home with warm, fuzzy feelings, because it's simply too serious for that. So bear with me as I begin to tease this out. The Sanhedrin, I initially, or let me rephrase that, Sanhedrin made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as you know, the most powerful religious body of its day. Now when those individuals had initially felt the call of God on their life, What do you think was the motivating factor in their mind? I can't help but wonder if when God initially called them as young men, they probably would have been excited. They probably would have been men of prayer. They probably would have taken a long time to work out, is God actually calling me to be a Pharisee or a Sadducee? And when the call of God comes on a person's life, it is a profound experience, deeply personal. It's very exciting. And you cannot wait to where he's going to take you next. And I imagine in their minds they are saying, I'll get to spend all day at the temple, helping people in need, showing them where to worship, showing them what's involved in sacrifices, helping them sing psalms and songs, and helping them pray. Can you imagine how exciting that would be to sense the call of God for the rest of your life? 
And slowly but surely, the emphasis changed. And the focus was no longer serving those in need. It was no longer going out your way to teach someone how to pray or how to worship or how the sacrificial system works. And it became about dietary regulations, what you could eat and when you could eat it, what you could wear and when you could wear it. Feasts and festivals began slowly but surely to take over and it became about power and authority and control for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they'd come so far from the things of God, yet worked in and around the temple every day. And they now find themselves at the situation where they can no longer feel and sense God at work in their very midst. Here was the resurrection of Christ, God's climactic plan for the salvation of all of humanity, not just as chosen people, but people in Egypt and Syria and Asia Minor and over into Europe. And the purposes and plans of God climaxed at Calvary and the Holy Spirit was at work in spectacular fashion. And they could not see him at work. How on earth does someone get from surrendering and submitting their life in the service of God to ultimately treating him with contempt and disdain and unable to recognize God at work? How does that happen? Well, it happens for this reason. This is the part that's distasteful and ugly. So please be patient with me. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, The Scripture is crystal clear on this point, that when sin begins to creep into a person's life, it often is so silent and subtle and slow, you no longer are able to see it at work, because it will always convince you that what you are doing is right, because sin is appealing and it's alluring, and it's enticing. And it begins to make you feel powerful, and you're in charge. And the Sanhedrin that day who dragged Stephen out of the city and stoned him to death believed that they were large and in charge and carrying out the purposes and plans of God. That's how powerful sin is. And I am absolutely convinced, and I know it to be true in my own life, that we consistently underestimate the power and significance and gravitas of sin. I cannot tell you the number of times I've sat in my office and chatted with an individual whose life has fractured and is falling apart. And they then go on to recount one event after another of poor choices and a sinful lifestyle. And they say to me, Richard, what on earth was I thinking? And I want to shake them by the shoulders and look them in the eye and say, you weren't thinking. You were going by your feelings. And if it feels good, do it. And I meet with folks who struggle with alcohol addiction. And when they're under the influence of alcohol, they feel just wonderful. 
And everyone else around them looks at them and shakes their head and thinks, good night, where will this end? They've lost children and family and friends and jobs. And if it's not alcohol, it's drug addiction. If it's not drug addiction, it's substance abuse. If it's not substance abuse, there is a couple who promise to love each other the rest of their days. The rest of their days. That relationship should have become sweeter and sweeter as every year has gone by. And then there is an extramarital affair. And all of the promises and all of the love end up as betrayal and decimation and regret. And only the grace of God can put that back together again. That's how serious sin is. And when it gets a hold of us, not only is it devastating, not only is it deceptive, but it is enslaving as well. Utterly enslaving. And when Jesus said, I have come with the truth and the truth shall set you free. That's exactly what he meant. Because when the gospel impacts a life, you become free. You become spiritually alive for the first time. And you move away from a dead religion to a relationship with Christ himself. That was Stephen's experience. That was the apostles' experience. That's why people in their thousands, in those early days of the infant church, that first two-year period, people were beginning to understand that God was real. He was deeply in love with them. He was transforming them and refining them and enabling them to get to know Him. It could not have been more spectacular or more exciting or more transformational. But please also understand this. And whenever the gospel is at work and God is on the loose, sin and evil will not be far behind. Because the last thing sin and evil wants is for the gospel to grow and expand and people to come to realize it's true and He exists and you can know Him and fall in love with Him and understand what it means to be indwelt by Him and forgiven and cleansed by Him. And so in order to stamp it out, sin runs riot among the Sanhedrin and Stephen is arrested, ultimately put to death. Now, here's my next point, and it's this. How do you respond when, like Stephen's family, you find yourself in a place of deep and bitter disappointment? Now, moments ago, I tried to make the point that we seriously underestimate the significance, power, and gravitas of sin and especially our own sin, because it's deceptive and enslaving and toxic, and we can justify it till the cows come home. But please also hear this. If we underestimate the power of sin, we also underestimate, deeply underestimate, the power, significance, and gravitas of 
God's grace. We do. And even at the center of this story, when it all seems to be falling apart, and the church seems to be coming to an end with the death of Stephen and Saul going from house to house, arresting people, persecuting them, and putting them in prison. It seems that all of the plans of God are now come to an end. But look, in recording all that took place in Acts, gives us hope. He gives us hope. Because when you are at that place and you think there is no longer such a thing as hope, then hope is real. The grace of God provides for us hope and a new beginning and a fresh start. And it doesn't have to end at Acts chapter 7 because chapter 8 is coming and God is still on the loose. And Luke hints at it by saying, and Saul was there. Chapter 8 and chapter 9, we'll see it next Sunday, that God is about to touch the heart and mind and soul of Saul. He's about to make him the greatest single instrument of the grace of God in all of history other than Christ himself. And here he is at the end of chapter 7, a terrorist, taking the lives of individuals. But God is not finished. In many ways, he's only just begun because the gospel is now about to break out from Jerusalem and redemption is to come to all humanity. I wonder how often we found ourselves in that tough spot, that place so dark we think there is no hope. And then as we look back, we see God in all of his faithfulness. Last week I was reminded of that well-known poem that reads like this. Many a rapturous minstrel among the sons of, sons of light will say of his sweetest music, I learned it in the night. Many a rolling anthem that fills the Father's throne, sobbed at its first rehearsal in the shroud of a darkened room. I've been around long enough and walked a Christian road long enough to know this, that when Christian people get around the family table at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and when we remember the fun stories or the difficult stories, we also remember this, that God is faithful. He hasn't given up on you. He hasn't abandoned you. He's not sitting in heaven this morning, relaxed with his arms folded and his legs crossed, saying, I wish someone would do something about the state of the world. He's doing the opposite. He's answering prayer. He's intervening. He's strengthening you and equipping you and enabling you to live by his grace day by day by day. And please hear this. It does not ultimately matter if there are a million Stephens and Sauls out there because God in his sovereign purpose and will will bring to pass his purpose and will because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you. And when you surrender 
surrender and submit your life to him, there is nothing in all the world that comes close to that. That's what enabled those early Christians to keep going. That's what enables us to keep going, knowing that when it is at its darkest, there is still hope. When we are in deep and serious need of guidance, there is still hope. When we are ashamed of our own sin and cannot carry on in our own strength, there is still hope. And the grace of God and the love of God enables us to grow in such a way that we become a people growing in grace and gratitude. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your challenge to us this morning. And we freely confess there are days in our life when we simply don't know what is happening. Dark and difficult days. And yet when we look back, We see your hand at work. Father, may that be our experience this week as we seek to live out our faith in the messiness and distraction of real life. Father, hear our prayers, for we bring them to you in and through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you like to explore membership at First Presbyterian Church? Join us for a new member weekend and discover how we worship and live out our faith with each other and our community. The weekend consists of three sessions taking place on Friday evening, Saturday morning, and Sunday afternoon. You'll enjoy a meal with our senior pastor and other leaders. Learn what we believe and hear about our vision. Child care is available. Register today at firstpressgreenville.org.